Now, this morning we shall go through the meditation instructions as given by the late Venerable Mahasi Saido of Myanmar, a well-renowned Buddhist meditation master as well as a scholar, Buddhist scholar. And and the instructions this morning will cover four areas. First of all, the instructions relating to the sitting meditation. Then we shall explore the instructions for the walking meditation and then for the general activities and then also make a few comments about the interview and this will be followed by some general remarks. Now, in the Mahasi approach to Vipassana meditation, a meditator is uh, uh, requested uh, to uh, practice mindfulness of all predominant objects, not only during the sitting meditation, but also uh, during the uh, formal walking meditation and uh, the general uh, activities. So basically, uh, to be mindful uh, throughout one's uh, waking hours. Now, for the sitting meditation itself, the first aspect we shall deal with is the posture, the sitting posture. So when you find yourself a place to sit, then you can either, as indicated by the Buddha himself in the Satipatthana Sutta and other places, sit in a cross-legged fashion. However, uh, this to you know, many people may be uh, close to impossible and it's not uh, a must. Most of us uh, no, won't have uh, no, the necessary muscular you know, flexibility you know, for this. And so if we cannot sit in full lotus, definitely there's no need to impress others by sitting in full lotus for a longer period of time. And what's the use of it if after a shorter period of time one develops excruciating pains and aches? Now, um, if uh, you know, the full lotus doesn't work, uh, you know, then one could uh, try to you know, sit in what is known as uh, the half lotus uh, position with one you know, foot placed on the thigh of uh, the opposite uh, leg. And you know, should this you know, posture also you know, prove to be you know, too you know, difficult to you know, maintain comfortably for a longer period of time, and then you might assume what is known as the Burmese posture, namely simply placing you know, one you know, foot in front of you know, the other, so without you know, the legs interlocking. And so and this usually for the majority you know, works quite uh, well. And so, but any other you know, posture is fine as long as you can you know, maintain it comfortably you know, for a longer you know, period of time. And so for those 
or who you know, would like to sit on a, a small you know, bench, you know, please go ahead and uh, you know, do so. Or if because of some you know, back and ailment you, know, you need to you know, sit on a chair, you know, then feel free to do so. But try not to lean against uh, you know, the backrest since uh, you know, that then you know, promotes uh, you know, sleepiness. Now, next, when it comes to you know, the you know, position of uh, your you know, hands, you can keep your hands uh, any way you like. So either placing you know, them on the knees or uh, you know, then you know, folding them uh, on the lap, keeping them on the lap, or you know, if you sit in a you know, half lotus posture you know, between you know, the knees. Anyway, is fine. And so in you know, Theravada, Buddhism or Buddhist meditation, the posture, our hand posture isn't all that important and what matters more than the mudra is the development of wisdom and that happens quite independently of one's hand posture. Now, next, and please ensure that your you know, back is as upright as you know, possible, ideally 90 you know, degrees to you know, the ground. And uh, the disadvantages of you know, sitting with a slouched you know, back are you know, pretty obvious to you know, see. For one thing, sitting with it you know, in a slouched you know, way will... Um, will make the breathing more you know, difficult and certainly you know, furthermore it's, uh, this posture lends itself uh, to uh, sloth and certain uh, torpor and uh, furthermore it uh, may interfere you know, with uh, the you know, gastrointestinal system and the you know, digestion of you know, the food and uh, lastly you know, Sitting in a slouch turn away you know, may also you know, hinder the urinary you know, system. And so, sitting with an upright um, back to, in the end turns out to you know, be you know, the best uh, you know, posture. And so, and then, you know, in Satipatthana meditation, usually you know, we keep the eyes closed during you know, sitting meditation, and un, or unless we're you know, overwhelmed by you know, some you know, strong sloth and uh, torpor, in which case we could uh, open you know, the eyes and keep them open for a couple of uh, minutes as a you know, means to you know, drive away you know, the sleepiness and uh, you know, the and daylight, you know, as it is certainly uh, penetrating, might certainly uh, you know, then uh, activate uh, the mind again. And so, then, when it comes to you know, the breathing, we keep we try to keep the breathing as uh, natural as possible. And what this means is uh, simply you know, that you try not to interfere with your breathing. So when you know, the breathing is somewhat you know, slow and shallow, then you just accept it the way it is and you just observe it you know, the way it is without trying to uh, speed it up intentionally. And so on the other hand, 
Uh, should at times the breathing be uh, quite uh, fast and sort of accentuated, now then uh, again uh, just observe it the way it is now without certainly interfering with it. And certainly sooner or later it certainly will slow down uh, anyways. And so when we observe our you know, rising and falling movement of the abdomen, you know, then you know, we um, let it uh, occur uh, at a natural uh, rhythm or a natural uh, pace. Now, the primary object in the Mahasi-style Vipassana meditation is the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. So as we're breathing in, the abdomen will inflate and this then we label as rising and then we observe the entire rising process of the abdomen from beginning you know, through the middle until its uh, end and uh, you know, then you know, we try to know uh, its uh, nature. Likewise, when we breathe out, then naturally the abdomen tends to deflate and so then we just observe this entire process again from, we label it at the beginning and as falling and then we observe it from its beginning through the middle to its very end and trying to know the predominant sensations during the falling. Movement and also being and also knowing the nature of the predominant movement. Now, now, just as a clarification here at this point, sometimes uh, the meditators you know, mistake uh, you know, this instruction and uh, when they observe uh, you know, the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, and then they think they need to you know, observe it, or you know, they think they need to observe the entire breathing process, namely you know, from the point uh, you know, when the air is uh, you know, moving through the nostrils, uh, through the windpipe into the lungs, the lungs are expanding, and then, you know, and then they observe uh, you know, uh, at the end um, you know, the uh, rising movement of uh, you know, the abdomen. And the same thing goes certainly for you know, the uh, exhalation which goes along with the falling movement of uh, you know, the abdomen. So there's no need uh, to do like this, it's quite you know, sufficient if you uh, observe uh, the predominant sensations in you know, the or during the rising movement of the abdomen and during the falling movement of the abdomen as uh, these sensations uh, occur and so, and so generally speaking you know, just focus on the most predominant sensation uh, that is uh, um, that occurs somewhere in the abdominal area and uh, sometimes it can be in the center of the abdomen, sometimes more towards the right side, more towards the left side, or you know, higher up in the abdominal area, or further down. And sometimes it may even happen you know, that the rising movement rises all the way up into you know, the chest. If you know, this is the case, then just observe it wherever it is uh, happening. Now, 
as indicated already you know, last night, you know, the knowledge aspect covers knowing the predominant certain sensation, knowing the nature of you know, the object. So in the case of you know, the rising movement, obviously as you're breathing in, you know, the abdomen will expand and just the expansion itself, the expansion of the abdomen is already uh, a correct observation. That is a type of sensation. And then a number of other sensations may go along with the rising, such as maybe some tension or some stiffness or tightness, and so on and so forth. And during the falling movement, obviously, well, a certain relaxation of the abdomen will be there, and a certain contraction will be there, and a number of other sensations may accompany the falling movement of the abdomen. Also, um, now in the observation of uh, the rising and falling movement of the abdomen or any other predominant object as it may be uh, occurring in the body or in the mind, we then apply, always apply uh, three aspects. And those uh, three aspects are namely the occurrence of the object and then the labeling plus the observation of the object as number two and knowing the nature of the object. Now when it comes to the occurrence of the object this is just stating such and such an object has occurred or has arisen and the object will occur or arise all by itself there's nothing that is required from your part. Now, um, as for the uh, second aspect, you know, this consists of two, uh, you know, two parts. The first part is the labeling, which we can identify with the mental factor of perception or you know, recognition. You know, the Pali expression for this is sanya. So, uh, when an object has occurred, uh, then we label it mentally, we label it accordingly. So in the case of you know, the occurrence of the rising movement of the abdomen, we then go on you know, to just briefly and gently you know, in the mind label this as you know, rise or uh, rising. And so, then the second part is you know, that of the observation. And this basically um, is nothing other than mindfulness and uh, the Pali you know, technical term for this is sati. And so you know, we try to be mindful of or to be aware of, you know, to observe you know, this certain you know, rising movement as it is uh, happening. And so, you know, so the labeling of you know, the object requires you know, our input, so does you know, the observation of uh, the object which should be as continuous uh, as certain possible. And 
The third um, aspect is that of uh, knowledge, namely knowing the nature of uh, the object as uh, discussed earlier on in terms uh, of its uh, different sensations and what happens to uh, the different sensations involved and maybe also paying attention to uh, the movement or any other uh, aspect that might uh, strike your attention like the temperature of uh, you know, the rising movement, uh, is it more on the warm side, is it more on the cold side, or is it more on the you know, hot side, and so on and so forth. Now, these uh, three aspects of uh, you know, the occurrence of an object, and then the labeling plus the observation of it, and then knowing its uh, nature, now, these we could and should apply to any predominant object. And it helps for a meditator, or it helps the meditator then to ensure that the work is done properly. Sometimes it happens that an object occurs, but it ends there. There's no labeling, there's no observation of it, and naturally there's not knowing its uh, nature. Now, far better you know, than this is you know, well labeling and uh, so an object occurs and then labeling you know, the object bond you know, then you know, sometimes it may happen you know, that the observation isn't all you know, that you know, present or active and again there's no knowledge so this is slightly better and even better is that when an object occurs, we then label it and then we observe it as best as we can. And however, the knowledge aspect is still lacking. Maybe concentration is not there or some other factors missing. Now, the ideal state is with regard to, to uh, our you know, meditational work is you know, an object occurs, we label it accordingly, and then you know, we observe it as best as we can from start to finish, and you know, we then also know its uh, nature. And the Venerable Sadhu Pandita of Burma, long-standing disciple of the Venerable Mahasi Sayadu, makes it very clear that even if at times we miss to label an object, however we do know its nature, then this is good enough. And we do not intend to become masters at finding the right words or the right labels, but what matters more is certainly to properly, properly observe an object and to know its nature. So if at times we don't, we miss to label an object, but we do observe it properly, we do know its nature, then this is fine. Now, during you know, the beginning you know, phase of your meditation practice, some of you might uh, find uh, you know, the labeling you know, somewhat uh, uh, awkward. However, you know, do give it a fair you know, you know, try, and uh, you, you know, might uh, you know, find that, after all, it's uh, uh, quite helpful you know, because uh, it helps you, you know, to clarify for yourselves you know, what it is, and then you 
you are you know, observing. And rather than being very you know, vague or very general, and such as saying, oh, a sensation has occurred in the body, but not being any more precise than this, uh, it's far better you know, to you know, then give, uh, then give it a proper uh, name or you know, label as you know, this is tension and not hardness. Oh, and there we have tightness, and the tightness is not the same as the stiffness, and so on and so forth. And when it comes to the, uh, the objects of the external world, we're so used to, and we're not questioning at all, uh, our habit of uh, you know, labeling things or giving names to them. So a tree is a tree, and a uh, car you know, then is uh, given the designation as a car, and so on. Or people you know, go by certain you know, names. Uh, likewise, it's helpful you know, for uh, a clear um, observation and understanding of what is happening uh, in our meditation practice you know, to you know, then use certain of those uh, labels. Now, while, or back to our rising and falling, and you know, so you know, while we are observing it you know, for you know, some time, it certainly you know, may easily happen that you know, then the mind wanders off. So either it goes into you know, the future or it goes into you know, the past. And so, uh, hence, the wandering mind itself becomes the next most predominant object, in which case we let go of the you know, rise and fall, and we shift our attention to uh, the observation of uh, the wandering mind. We then take the wandering mind as an object, we label it accordingly as wandering, wandering, or thinking, thinking. If you like to be more precise than this, as, and you want to, lay, let's say in the case of you know, planning, you you know, then label it as planning, that's fine. Or if you happen to remember some event from the past and you label this as certain remembering, remembering, you know, then that's certainly fine too. So in the beginning, you know, labeling with specific labels is helpful. You know, later on you will find uh, it's in the end it's just all you know, thinking or wondering mind. And so, you know, then uh, one can go for you know, the more you know, general labels. Now, when, when and while the you know, wandering mind is occurring, uh, then we observe it as best as we can, and so in a detached manner, not getting caught up in the content of our thoughts, even though they may be highly fascinating or intriguing, and so, you know, then we just happen, or we just observe what happens to these certain uh, thoughts. So there's one thought lead to the next, to the next, to the next thought, and thus it becomes a train of thoughts, or is it you know, that the thought arises, it lasts for a couple of moments, and then in the presence of mindfulness it disappears by itself, and in which case we then go back to you know, the observation of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen.
Now, should the wandering mind continue for a longer period of time, now then stay with it and certainly keep observing it in a calm and certainly detached manner. And then if after maybe another 30 seconds or so it's still there, now then simply cut it off and then bring your attention back to the observation of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. Now, the thinking has its place in our human or in our, well, in our world and so, uh, we need to think in the field of uh, education, we need to think uh, uh, at the workplace and uh, at home we need to think and plan and organize and so on and so forth. However, when it comes to intensive meditation practice, the thinking is uh, more of a hindrance yeah, than uh, anything else. And so, the Venerable Mahasi said of Fadna Burma has clearly stated that the thinking or the wandering mind is a real, is a big uh, hindrance uh, to you know, the development in, of, or of our meditation practice. So, uh, try as best as you can uh, not to uh, get caught up in the thinking. This is easily said, but certainly uh, difficult uh, to do. Now, once you're you know, back on you know, the arising and falling and you're observing it you know, for a while, you know, then you might you know, notice that a pain, a strong predominant pain has arisen somewhere in the body. It could be in a knee, it could be in the back, or, or it could be uh, some, you know, somewhere in the foot. And in which case, let go of your observation of the you know, rising and falling, the movement of the abdomen for a while, and then shift your attention to you know, this certain pain, and then label it accordingly as certain pain, and then you observe it for a while, you know its nature, again you label it as pain, again you observe it, again you try to know its nature, and so on and so forth. Now, when it comes to you know, the observation of uh, a pain or any other predominant bodily you know, sensation, there are at least four very basic categories of observation. Namely, what kind of pain is this? And secondly, what about the intensity of this pain or this bodily sensation? What about its location? And what about its duration? Now, to explain these four points, um, there's a great variety of pains around, and so, so you need to find out for yourselves what kind of pain it is. Is it a stabbing pain or a piercing pain, or is it a tearing pain, or a knife cutting pain, or hard pain, or numbness pain, uh, or compression pain, and so on and so forth. And there's a long you know, list of uh, um, pains around. 
and so then while you're observing a pain or some other predominant sensation, bodily sensation, then trying to figure out how is this object doing in terms of intensity. So is the intensity increasing or is it staying the same or is it decreasing and certainly maybe eventually you know, the pain or you know, the sensation is disappearing. Now, the next and you know, the third aspect to you know, explore or investigate is that of its location. So pain may arise in one spot and as you're observing it, you may find that it starts moving around. So it might move around in circles or in a zigzag manner or simply it may you know, just spread out over a larger you know, area or you know, sometimes what may happen is a pain arises in one spot, you observe it for a while, you know, then it's gone and then it seems as if you know, the same kind of pain has arisen in a different spot. And then you observe it there for a while and then it disappears. And, so, and then the fourth so, you know, very basic uh, aspect to investigate is how certain the object are doing in terms of duration. So is this a long-lasting object or you know, sensation which should uh, maybe sticks around you know, for you know, the entire you know, session or you know, is it certain a pain or some bodily sensation that lasts just for a couple of minutes or for a couple of uh, you know, seconds or just for a few moments. Whatever the case may be, just be aware of this and certainly know what's certainly going on. Now, once a pain has certainly disappeared or dissolved, then you know, resume you know, the observation of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. Now, when it comes to you know, the observation of pains and aches and other you know, stronger bodily you know, formations, you know, we very much need patience and certain determination. In the sense of not right away you know, changing our you know, posture you know, when you know, such a pain you know, occurs or you know, gets certain, somewhat certain stronger. So as a meditator we need plenty of courage you know, to you know, face what is certainly going on. Now, you know, this you know, may not be that easy, but uh, after a while it will get uh, easier. And the you know, pains you know, that uh, you observe at the you know, beginning of your retreat, maybe a week you know, you know, down the road, seem like peanuts, uh, rather <laughs> negligible. So, our ability to work with pains and aches will change over time. Our endurance will improve, and this, of course, is great. And now, when a pain becomes unbearable or excruciating, and this may very well happen, then kindly do feel free to change your sitting posture, but do so slowly and mindfully. So be aware of the very first intention to shift the posture, label that, observe that, know it, and 
then uh, be mindful or, or uh, label and uh, be mindful of and know the nature of this entire process of uh, then uh, actually uh, shifting your or changing your posture. Now, there is a disadvantage with uh, you know, changing one's posture. You know, once uh, you give in to pain, then there's a good or fair chance that you might uh, do so a second time and a third time. And this certainly uh, then will clearly um, make the development of concentration somewhat uh, difficult. So every change of posture usually you know, does affect uh, you know, the concentration. Now, now, there's still one more case for you know, the or working with pains. If a pain occurs, you're observing it for a while, and then it's not changing in any major way, and you've seen it all, and then you, know, you might as well you know, shift your attention back to the rise and fall of you know, the abdomen. You observe that for a while, and so, you know, then you know, once in a while you go back you know, to you know, that pain and then you check what is certainly the pain doing. So if it hasn't changed much, the status quo is the same, then just go back to your primary object or observe some other object. Now, when we undertake intensive meditation practice, a whole range of mental events or mental objects that may occur. And so, so if, for instance, apart from the wandering mind, we find that we are overwhelmed by sloth and torpor, and the Pali expression for this is santina and meda, then we take, we let go of the rise and fall, and then we shift our attention to the observation of the sloth and torpor. And so we try to work with it as best as we can before you know, we uh, are totally overwhelmed by it. So there's a certain time you know, usually then precedes you know, sloth and torpor, or while, you know, while sloth and torpor is still you know, somewhat weaker and workable. And so as the mental state of sloth and torpor is occurring, we, we label it, we observe it, and we try to know its nature. So by trying to know its nature is meant we find out, we, yeah, we try to know or understand how the sloth and torpor manifests in the mind, and yeah, then also we might briefly go back into the body and see how it manifests physically. Maybe our sitting posture is sagging, or maybe the eyes are getting somewhat heavy, and so on. And so these are all things to be known. Once the sloth and torpor has disappeared through the power of mindfulness, then we go back to the rise and to the observation of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. Now, while we're sitting in meditation, we might find that all of a sudden some joy arises. 
And so then we could take the joy somewhat predominant, then we could take the joy itself as the next object of observation, and then accordingly we label it as such, we observe it, and we try to know its nature. So again, how is it manifesting in the mind? And briefly we might check what is happening in the body, how is it manifesting in the body. Now once uh, the joy uh, has uh, dissolved uh, then our observation goes back uh, to uh, the uh, rise or, or our attention goes back to the observation of the arising and falling movement of uh, the abdomen now so there's a whole range of uh, the mental objects uh, that uh, might occur in the, cor- in the course of the meditation practice for you to find out uh, which ones and so in the face of, uh, or, or while observing mental, mental states or mental objects, it's really important to maintain this attitude of a calm and certain detached observation. It makes a huge difference whether you know, we get personally involved in the story, involved in the mental state you know, that is uh, uh, happening, or whether we simply, figuratively speaking, we step back a meter or two and then with attachment we are observing what's happening in the mind. So the second case is the one that we need to develop as much as possible in our meditation practice. Now, when meditating, all sorts of objects uh, may arise and uh, the six uh, sense doors. In Buddhism, there's a dimension of six sense doors, and those sense doors are the eye door, the ear door, the nose door, the tongue door, the body door, and the mind door. And it's just one uh, way of classifying uh, our experiences. And so, to take just one example for these six sense doors, namely the hearing process. So, while we're sitting in meditation, we might maybe hear, we might hear a loud sound, someone inadvertently well slams the mosquito screen door. And thus then, there's a sound, there's a hearing process, and then we take this as an object of observation, we label this as hearing, hearing, or simply just once as hearing, and then we observe this hearing process as it goes on. And not in the sense that we try to figure out, okay, what is the source of this sound, or maybe who is involved in this, but rather, you know, we just pay attention to the very basics of the hearing process, such as uh, you know, the sound itself, its volume, and, uh, and then is it a high-pitched sound, a low-pitched sound, and, so, and then you know, what certain are you know, the you know, reactions in the mind, what are the you know, reactions in the body to you know, this certain sound, and so on. And so, 
thus then the hearing process is incorporated in our meditation practice. The same thing goes for any other predominant object that might occur at the eye door or in with regard to the a smelling process and uh, tasting uh, some food or a tactile object and of course there are plenty of uh, sensations occurring in the body and it's the body sensitivity uh, that uh, is involved uh, or is the uh, respective uh, sense door. And then as we've discussed already uh, wandering mind, sloth and torpor and joy so if a particular object occurs in the mind door or at the mind door then we try to be mindful of it. Now, the basic maxim for the in, in Mahasi Nastal Vipassana meditation is always label, observe and know the most predominant object as it is occurring in the body or the mind starting with the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. So at the very beginning of the sitting you start with the observation of your rise and fall and then you take it from there and then you, when some wandering mind occurs, you take the wandering mind as the next object, you work with that. Once it's gone, you go back to the rise and fall. And then, if after some time, some pain arises somewhere in the body and it's predominant, then you focus your attention on the pain, you work with the pain. Once it's gone, you go back to the rise and fall. And then, if maybe some joy has arisen in the mind, you take you know, the joy as the next object, you work with this. Once it's gone, then you go back to the observation of the rise and fall and so on and so forth. So there's no need certain to do any uh, sweeping meditation to look for, for objects but rather just go by the principle or by the maxim of observing that object and that happens to be most predominant at certain uh, or, or in the present uh, moment. Now, in this connection, you know, two you know, further you know, clarifications, namely, uh, try, you know, under most circumstances, try to observe one predominant object at a time and try not to observe two or three at the same time, although later on there are some you know, exceptions where you know, the quality of mindfulness you know, tends to change and so, you know, when it becomes more you know, panoramic in nature, and so the second clarification in this certain regard is should two or three or four uh, equally predominant objects occur in your meditation practice and you don't quite know which one to work with next and then simply you have the freedom of choice and so you just observe the one that you like best and uh, you know, then stay with it and be happy with it now um, next 
still in uh, the connection with our sedimentation, but uh, also later on with uh, you know, in, in regards uh, you know, with the walking meditation and the general activities, there's some very basic uh, uh, mental you know, factors or qualities that uh, are invel- involved in uh, the proper observation and uh, you know, of an object in knowing its uh, nature. And one of them is mindfulness itself. This is obvious. Um, However, to some, the continuity of the mindfulness is not that obvious. Now, the continuity of our mindfulness is probably the most vital factor for uh, a rather good development in our meditation practice. Now, if our continuity of uh, mindfulness is kind of an um, on and off affair, so sometimes mindfulness is there, and then at other times it's not there, and then again we are mindful for for stretch, and then we're lost in, in daydreaming, and then... Uh, this will uh, have an effect on you know, the quality of our you know, meditation practice. So please try to work right from the very beginning of this retreat on the continuity of your mindfulness. Try to make it as continuous as possible you know, throughout the entire day and over you know, the course of uh, you know, this uh, you know, retreat. And at first, uh, you know, the mindfulness tends to be you know, somewhat uh, intermittent or dis continues, that's natural, and so, however, if we keep working at it, then gradually it becomes more and more continuous, and so, uh, later on, uh, it will be pretty, you know, pretty continuous, and so, uh, that then will contribute to the overall uh, uh, development in our meditation practice. The mind, uh, you will see, uh, becomes increasingly uh, sharp and uh, aware. And so we then notice and notice some things are aware of objects that under normal circumstances we would not be aware of. Now, other mental factors or qualities that are involved in proper observation are those of aiming. And I'm using the language that the Venerable Sainte Upandita likes to employ in this regard. By aiming, he means the mental factor of uh, vitaka, vitaka, which is usually a jhanic factor, and so, you know, there it's known as the initial application of the mind. But here, in the context of vipassana, it's uh, you know, you know, used in the sense of aiming or directing you know, the mind so, as precisely as possible uh, towards so, you know, the object uh, of observation. Now, this aiming then needs to be accompanied by another mental factor, which is the factor of effort or virya. And it is an effort which then propels our observing and knowing mind towards the object of observation. And this has to happen over and over again. So just like our mindfulness needs to be continuous, so too the effort also needs to be continuous from moment to moment to moment. And so this requires not just one moment of 
their effort in a minute, but ideally many moments uh, of uh, effort uh, in a uh, minute. Now, when both of these certain mental factors are present, namely aiming is there, you know, we uh, are exerting you know, a balanced amount of uh, effort, then quite naturally you know, the observing and knowing mind will be in contact or in touch with the object, predominant object of observation. And if things keep going like this, then it will be literally Literally speaking, uh, rubbing near the object of observation. Now, this rubbing is um, again uh, a mental factor that frequently occurs uh, in the context of uh, samatha meditation or in the context of uh, the jhanas, the absorptions, and there it's known as the sustained application of the mind, so the mind is kept on the object. Now, here in the context of Vipassana, of course, it's not some conceptual object, but rather an ultimately uh, existing uh, object, such as a pain, a predominant sensation. Now, when those certain four mental factors are present, namely mindfulness, and then furthermore proper aiming, effort is there, and the mind is also in close contact with the object, it's a rubbing of the object, then quite naturally concentration will arise, the mind will be concentrated, it will fall squarely onto the object of observation, and then out of this arises some understanding, some knowledge about the nature of uh, the object. Now, this then very much covers um, the main points uh, regarding our sitting meditation. Now, let's move on and explore uh, aspects connected with uh, the walking meditation. Now, the walking meditation in uh, the Mahasi style Vipassana meditation is as important as is the sitting meditation and the reason for this lies uh, again in the continuity of mindfulness. Venerable Mahasi's Nisada was very well aware that the mindfulness that, had been, you know, that has been developed in a sitting needs to you know, be extended into or carry forward into the next activity. And so there then during that next activity it needs to be further developed and so so that then ever strengthened or ever stronger mindfulness is then present for the following sitting meditation. And hence the uh, formal walking meditation plays an important role and actually there's plenty of evidence for this too uh, in uh, the text. Um, the, the Buddha himself uh, has been described as doing chankama, uh, namely walking meditation, as well as uh, many of uh, his uh, disciples. Now, 
when we do the walking or usually when we practice especially at the beginning of a retreat it's wise to spend an equal amount of time on the sitting meditation and walking meditation so let's say we sit for one hour then we walk for one hour then again we sit for one hour then we walk for one hour and so if we find it difficult to sit for the entire hour, well, then we sit a little bit less or maybe change the posture. And certainly then we might certainly do less certain walking meditation. However, over time as our meditation will unfold and gain some momentum, then we may find that we can actually sit longer in meditation and then it's quite okay to follow this natural development. Now, in uh, the Mahasi style of the Pasamentation, we uh, commonly you know, use you know, three you know, forms of walking meditation, namely the first one which is a kind of somewhat faster you know, walking meditation and, and one is mindful as you know, the left you know, leg moves, one is mindful as you know, the right leg moves and one labels accordingly as left step, right step, left step, right step. However, this kind of uh, walking meditation is still somewhat slower than ordinary uh, casual uh, walking. And during this certain first kind of uh, walking meditation, your attention is on the most predominant certain sensation occurring during, well, anywhere in the leg that is moving. So it could be a sensation in the knee, or it could be some sensation in the thigh, but it could also be some predominant sensation in the foot itself. Now, during the second type of the walking meditation, we intentionally slow down its speed, and we then divide one step into two parts, namely the lifting of the foot and then the placing of the foot. And as we lift you know, the foot at the very beginning of this process, we label it accordingly as lifting. And then we observe the entire lifting process from the very you know, start until you know, the very end of it. And we try to know you know, the most you know, predominant sensations in the foot as they are occurring. And and then, as you know, the foot is being lowered and placed on the ground, we take this phase, or this process as an object of observation, we label it accordingly as lowering or placing, and then again we observe this placing movement from moment to moment to moment, and we try to know the predominant sensations involved in this. So during this uh, second uh, phase of, uh, or uh, second form of uh, walking meditation, our field for potential objects is no longer the entire leg as it moves, but rather you know, just the foot you know, which is in action. So the foot that comes off the ground, or you know, the foot that is being placed on the ground. Now. 
oftentimes during the beginning you meditate you say but you know, there's so many other you know, sensations occurring in the other foot which remains static on the ground yes indeed uh, however the instruction is you know, stay with the foot you know, which is uh, you know, moving and after a while you get used to it and it's uh, good not to you know, shift the mind you know, back and forth you know, to you know, much uh, since this uh, you know, may contribute you know, to some you know, uh, amount of uh, uh, well mental you know, distraction now the third you know, form of walking meditation is even slower than the second one and so, you know, we, you know, so we go as slowly as we you know, possibly can and there's a maxim here the slower you know, we you know, do our walking meditation or you know, later on for the general activities the slower we do a particular activity you know, the better, you know, the quicker you know, will our meditation unfold and so, um, then the, we divide the uh, one step into three parts, namely the lifting process as before, then as a new element, namely the moving process or you know, the foot which is gliding through the air, and then finally you know, the placing of the foot on the ground. So three you know, parts to it, and so in each case you know, we are you know, we label it accordingly as lifting, as moving as certain uh, placing and then you know, we try to observe you know, the respective uh, movement from start to finish and we try to know you know, the, the predominant sensations or the predominant you know, movement or any other predominant aspect uh, involved in this. Now when in a, in a few moments I'll show you, I'll give you a demonstration of these you know, three forms of uh, walking meditation. But before doing this, you know, there's you know, a few you know, more general aspects. Namely, when you do the walking meditation, then try to maintain an upright certain posture, so there's no need to look at one's certain feet to check whether they're still there or not, and but rather to focus one's attention at a spot maybe three to four feet ahead, and so then also not to look around too much. And then, um, for the, and to keep your you know, arms or your hands uh, either in front of the body or you know, behind you know, the body, and so, you know, definitely avoid you know, your arms, so, you know, well, kind of swinging uh, freely you know, along. This is actually a sign of you know, absent-mindedness. We do it all the time, but uh, we're mostly not aware of it. Now. There is plenty of uh, space here uh, on the Vaisitos Ranch, but like we have how many acres? 135 acres. So there should be enough uh, space for each and every one of uh, you to uh, have uh, uh, enough room to do your walking meditation. However, should 
for one reason or another, um, it, two or three of you are doing you know, the you know, the walking meditation in you know, one air, you know, a particular air, you know, then try to avoid you know, that your paths are uh, crisscrossing, since this uh, uh, easily leads to some social friction. Now, this is you know, something that happens in Asia all the time, and uh, let's say if a group of uh, you know, 30 or 40 meditators uh, you know, practice together, they all share one big meditation hall, and then you have one meditator going like this, the other one going like that, another one you know, is kind of circling around, another one is uh, you know, you know, doing his or her walking meditation uh, in a diagonal manner, you know, then, you know, then you know, this sooner or later you know, leads to you know, some, uh, you know, well, explosion and uh, but I, I suppose here that you know, we have theoretically speaking more than one acre many times more than one acre per person so uh, we should be alright on this and um, then let me see then as mentioned slowing down is really important and so it is when we slow down you know, that we you know, that the mind so, you know, gains an opportunity to really you know, observe carefully what is going on when we we're so used to do you know, things quickly. That's you know, just the way it is in modern uh, society, you know, where we are you know, valued according to you know, the speed of at which we get things done. But in the meditation practice, it's just you know, the opposite. And so, um, also what is really important you know, in the context of the walking meditation is the restraint of our senses. Now even though we have eyes to see with, yet on a retreat we try not to, you know, we try to not to look around, we try not to take in all the beautiful sights around here, knowing very well you know, that this will have an impact on the mind and it will lead to a certain distraction of uh, the mind. Now, at the beginning of a retreat, this is not easily understood. It may not be your experience as yet, but later on, as things are becoming more refined and your mindfulness gets better, then you might notice yourselves that every time you look around, the mind gets stimulated, or you see something, the mind gets stimulated, and then you'll be thinking about what you've seen, and then some mental reaction will be there, either liking or disliking, and thus it may easily become a source for the arising of some unwholesome mental states. Now, more on this certain restraint of the senses, its benefits, uh, and uh, the disadvantages of a lack of uh, restraint uh, during um, one of uh, the future uh, Dhamma talks. Now, to give you a demonstration of uh, the three forms of uh, walking meditation, so, first of all, upright certain posture, hands either in front of the body or behind certain of the body, and so, you know, then and definitely please don't so, so don't walk around like this, uh, no. and so, like village people would do. And 
<laughs> of course you're not from the village. <laughs> and so, you know, then, and then we focus our attention at a spot maybe you know three or four meters in front of us, and also. Uh, as mentioned earlier on, there's no need to look at the feet. If we keep doing this you know, for a longer period of time, like for 20 days, at the end of the 20 day period, we'll surely end up with a stiff neck or even if, you know, with a, you know, a lower back problem. And so, you know, so it's really best to keep an upright you know, posture and so, you know, then uh, as the right leg moves, we label this as right. And and then as the left Sutner leg moves, we label this as left step. So right Sutner step and Sutner then left step and then right step. And in each case, we try to be aware of, aware of and we try to know the most predominant sensation that is occurring in the leg that is moving. Now, when we come to the end of our path and we're standing there, then the standing posture itself now becomes another object of observation. We simply label this as standing standing, and so then you know, we try to you know, observe and try to know the most predominant sensation either in the feet or you know, in the legs or in the body, wherever. And um, then obviously we're not going to stand forever and some and then whenever the intention to turn around certain occurs, we take this in itself as an object, we label that as intending to turn, intending to turn, and then we observe it and know it, and then we actually turn around, and again we do this with mindfulness. So turning, and then turning, and again turning, and turning. Now we're again in the standing posture, so you know, we you know, label again as turn, as standing, standing, and so again observing and knowing you know, the most predominant sensations involved in this. Now, this much regarding you know, the first form of walking meditation. The second, as for the second one, so again, uh, upright certain posture, and certain, especially for the second and third kind of uh, form of walking meditation, kindly choose you know, short steps, not a big long step like this. If you do like this, if you do your walking meditation like this, then there'll be a major disadvantage. And what is the disadvantage? Who knows? You might fall over near this, and on top of this, in the, in the forward movement, you you can lose your concentration. You can lose your concentration. Well, yeah, the um, the disadvantage is main disadvantage is that while you're placing one foot on the ground in front of you, the other foot will already come off the ground. So then you'll have two objects at the same time. You have the front foot and the back foot at the same time, and the mind doesn't quite know where to go. Should it go to the foot which is in front, or to the one in the back? So therefore, it's much easier, much better to take small, short steps, something like like this. No, of course you are not getting very far with this, but. <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, it helps. So, um, so as you're placing the foot on the ground and it's firmly you know, poised on the ground, and then only does the, the heel of the other foot come off the ground. So you don't have, you no longer have two objects at the same time. No. So now then. Uh, let's start here with the you know, foot in the back. So um, you know, we label this as lifting. So lifting, and then you know, our entire attention goes to you know, this uh, lifting process, knowing you know, knowing the different sensations that occur as you know, the heel is coming off the ground. So, for instance, you, know, you might at first you might notice some pressure on the heel heel or in, in the entire foot and then as the body is moving forward and the heel is coming off the ground naturally you know, the pressure you know, there will be a release or a decrease in uh, pressure then you might notice you know, some you know, stretching you know, sensation you know, in the middle of the sole and then and, you, know, you might pay attention to you know, the sensations uh, that might occur along the outer edge of the foot or along the inner edge. So is there hardness there, softness there, you know, tightness there, whatever, or maybe it's painful even. And so, you know, then as you know, the ball is certain mostly on, on the foot, you know, then what's the most predominant sensation at this point? So there could be you know, some pressure there and a certain balance the movement, the pressure is moving, moving around, and so and then you know, maybe also some heat or cold, whatever it may be. And so, you know, then as you know, the foot is gradually coming up, you, know, you might notice that less and less of the toes will be on the ground until only one you know, remains in contact. And then at that point, what's the most predominant sensation? So uh, at that point, is there heaviness there or lightness and or some other you know, predominant sensations so just explore and then as the foot is coming up know the most predominant sensation so this is still part of the lifting process now um, then when it comes to the lifting the height of it you don't have to lift the foot certain, uh, like this like an ostrich um, so it's quite enough if uh, you know, the foot certainly kind of gets off the, is off the ground and so just high enough so that you can then you know, place it again so let's say about maybe this much and now this starts the lowering process or the process of placing the foot so we label this as placing and then you know, we observe the different certain sensations involved uh, in placing the foot so certain you know, relaxation in the foot and certainly you know, then maybe also some cool sensation there and certainly then you know, pay particular attention to the very first moment when you know, the heel touches uh, you know, the ground. So at that point, you know, do you experience hardness or softness or roughness or smoothness or heat or cold or warmth? So there's a great variety of uh, you know, sensations. And then 
as you know, the foot is um, being placed, or the heel is being placed on the ground, you know, then note you know, the next uh, the sensation. So maybe you know, there is certainly some, you know, some pressure there, and then as you're placing the foot on the ground, the pressure you know, might increase and spread out over the entire heel, and then even to uh, other parts uh, of uh, the foot. And then it's basically the same thing for you know, the next step. So lifting and then uh, placing. And then again you know, lifting, lifting and then uh, placing. Again, oops, lifting and uh, placing. And then at the end of our path, this is as certainly explained earlier on, uh, while standing we label it standing, standing, and so, uh, then uh, we observe accordingly, and so, uh, then uh, while turning we label this as turning, turning, we're aware of the different sensations involved, and so, uh, then one more time, turning, turning. Now, um, this much for the second form of walking meditation, and now the third form of walking meditation. This uh, goes even slower, and we have now already covered the lifting process and the placing. What remains to be explained is the middle portion, and so it's something like this. So lifting of the foot, and then um, at the beginning of the, the forward movement, you just label as certain forward or gliding, and or moving, and then carefully you observe the different sensations involved certain while the foot is moving forward. So is there lightness there, or heaviness, or certain numbness, or you know, maybe you know, the breeze is touching you know, the foot, and so you know, there's maybe some you know, cool, you know, cool sensation on the surface of the foot and so on. And so then and then at the end of the forward movement well be aware of the sensations there and then comes the lowering process. So that then gives you a certain idea of how to do the walking meditation. Now, when you need to urgently need to go to places, and then of course you don't uh, have to walk around so slowly, and then it's quite okay if you, you know, take the first form of walking meditation and you, you know, label as left step, right step, left step, right step. And during the beginning or first few days of, you know, of the retreat you know, well at first you'll be you know, doing maybe um, 20 minutes of uh, the somewhat faster you know, walking meditation so left step right step you know, then the next 20 minutes of a sitting, you could uh, you know, do you know, the second form of walking meditation, and then during the you know, third 20-minute period, you do you know, the third certain kind of or third form of walking meditation. 
However, very soon you'll get suddenly to the point, and this happens naturally, where you find that uh, the first certain form of walking meditation is just too fast for you, and naturally you will want to go slower. In this case, go slower, drop the first certain form of walking meditation, and simply just observe what's happening during the second form and third form of walking meditation. And so... Um, and then after a while, you might certainly find that even the second form of walking meditation is too fast for you, in which case you slow even, or in which case you just then limit yourself to the third form of walking meditation. So just go by the natural development and you decide for yourself when you want to drop a particular type of walking. Now, mindfulness in general activities is certainly somewhat similar to the walking, the instructions for the walking meditation. Whatever activity we might be involved in, such as waking up in the morning, should certainly then become an object of our mindfulness practice. So. Uh, when we um, uh, when we get uh, when we sit up uh, in bed, uh, then we can do so uh, mindfully. When we get out of bed, again we turn this into an exercise in mindfulness, uh, and uh, then uh, when uh, putting on clothes, uh, we. Uh, turn this into an exercise of mindfulness. We do it as slowly and as mindfully as possible, knowing the different you know, sensations involved. And some uh, then uh, activities such as opening and closing of doors or placing one's shoes you know, in front of uh, the you know, meditation hall or in front of uh, you know, the you know, shower block. You know, so we do this mindfully and so, you know, then later on you know, sliding back into the shoes. This also you know, we do it, we try to do it you know, mindfully and so, you know, then simple activities such as brushing one's teeth. You know, so you know, when we brush our teeth, we label this as brushing, brushing, and then we observe the different sensations uh, uh, involved in this, and we try to know the, you know, the nature of uh, all uh, objects. And so mindfulness practice certainly should also be extended you know, to you know, well you know, the time when we take a meal, breakfast, lunch, and, you know, and then also for you know, the juice in the afternoon. Now, uh, any any you know, activity, even the most negligible, you know, one the most uh, uh, insignificant you know, one, you know, should certainly be uh, done with uh, utmost uh, mindfulness. Now, at first, you know, this seems you know, like asking for too much, but gradually you know, you'll get into you know, the rhythm of it, and certainly you'll you know, find that it will really help uh, your meditation practice. Now, uh, this much for the you know, general activities, and so, you know, then you know, there are a few you know, things you know, that need to be you know, said you know, regarding interviews. So, when 
uh, well, you know, interviews so in order to uh, give a proper report, well, actually, you know, we need to start uh, with uh, a proper uh, meditation. And uh, thus, um, while we're sitting in meditation or while we're doing our you know, walking you know, meditation, you know, we try to observe as best as possible and as many details as possible. And then right after sitting session or after walking session, we, try, you know, we then write down uh, our you know, experiences. At least you know, those who have a poor memory uh, are advised to do so. If you have an, an excellent memory, then of course there's no... Uh, need for this. And so then when the time comes for the interview, then be ready, be there in time. And the way it will work for Marcy and me is that um, Marcia will ring a bell and then you know, the meditator who has given his or her report will get up and so, you know, then you know, the next meditator you know, will come in. So there's no, uh, no overlap there. But in my case it will be slightly differently and I'll be seeing more meditators and you know, thus kindly. Um, when, when I ring the bell, which is usually two minutes before the appointed time, then do come in and so, uh, there will be a slight overlap of a minute or two with the previous uh, meditator. So the previous meditator will you know, you know, receive some you know, instructions and so, you, know, you as the new meditator, you're, you're coming in and so, you know, then just be ready. and. And then once the first meditator is done, you know, then that person will leave and so, you know, then it will be you know, your turn. In this way, you know, I can save you know, somewhat on you know, time. Otherwise, uh, if a meditator comes in, bows down, and so, uh, you know, this uh, you know, takes up plenty of time. Now, the... When you come in you know, to you know, the uh, or into the interview you know, place or venue, then try to do so. You know, try to be as mindful as possible, and so you know, actually. The way you come in oftentimes reflects uh, you know, the status of uh, your current uh, practice. Now, the Venerable Sadhu Upandita of Burma, who's been teaching and guiding the meditators for decades, uh, one important uh, point uh, he pays much attention to is how do meditators come in? Do they come rushing into the interview room, banging the door, slamming the door, and uh, yeah, then? racing there and uh, you know, then you know, quickly you know, well you know, bowing down and so, you know, you know, sitting there and being all fidgety well you know, if it's like this you know, then it's pretty obvious that you know, what's happening to this meditator uh, or is it more you know, the other, you know, the opposite, you know, that a meditator is really you know, practicing you know, mindfulness in general activities, so mindfulness op of opening a door and then mindfully closing it and then mindfully you know, of walking forward and then mindfully you know, lowering the body and so, you know, then, then getting ready. So there are big differences in how we do these uh, you know, small you know, things. 
and uh, during a mindfulness retreat, these uh, you know, these points uh, you know, become pretty uh, obvious. Now, what's next? When you give your, you know, when you write down your report, and when you give your report, it tends to be you know, best to proceed in a chronological manner in you know, your description of what happened. So, what happened at the very beginning of your you know, sitting or you know, of your sitting meditation, and so what was your rising movement like? What was your falling movement like? And you know, then, how did certain you know, things evolve you know, from there? Um, so and then just mention the main you know, the main events the so-called highlights of the sitting. There's no need to you know, report everything you know, in ten minutes. This won't be possible. And do include difficulties that you might be facing since practice is not always easy. And then when you write down your report and or give your report, then try to stick to the principles of accuracy and brevity and precision. So principles that are quite or commonly adhered to in the scientific world. Also, when you give your report, there's no keep things as keep your language as simple as possible, and uh, do not employ any polytechnical terms such as while I was observing the rising and falling, I saw anicca, or I saw the anicca on the rising, and so my falling was clearly a case of dukkha, and then uh, when observing a pain, then I. You know, witnessed it in the mode of anatta. So, so please, this is not the way to go. Just tell what uh, you observed and what you came to know uh, regarding your rising and falling and your pain. And then, also when you describe an object, when you observe and when you describe an uh, object, try not to do so from imagination, trying to impress certain, you know, the two meditation teachers here, but rather just go by what really happened. And there's no need to impress, and so, you know, what really matters most, in the, you know, especially during the interviews, uh, is you know, just to, uh, well, um, give a presentation of what really happened in one's meditation practice. So, a presentation of reality and not some imagined reality. And then, when you describe an object like the rising and falling movement of the abdomen or any other predominant object, you could, and the Venerable Sadhu Pandita, for instance, would insist on this very much, you could do so by making use of the aspects mentioned early on, namely you know, mentioning the occurrence of the object. Some meditators, they describe some object, but they never quite say which object. So one then is left certainly guessing, what is this person talking about? <laughs> yes, it happens. And so, as I do mention which object occurred, and then also mention whether or not you did label it, and 
and then even more important uh, well you know, the observation of it so whether it, you know, your you know, mindfulness was really or your, your mind was really you know, observing the object closely continuously uh, or not and then you know, finally you know, the knowledge aspect what was the nature of that particular object what were the features of that object while observing it what happens uh, you know, to you know, the sensation uh, the, uh, the object now when you give your you know, report, you know, please try to you know, refrain from evaluating your own meditation practice. Now, typically the way this happens is a meditator comes in and uh, you know, then declares, oh, my practice is really strong, or has been really strong during the last 24 hours. This is a clear evaluation of uh, one's uh, meditation as certainly uh, very uh, strong. And um, rather than uh, going into that, simply, uh, simply just uh, relate what uh, happened and then uh, when it comes to the evaluation, let that be you know, the meditation teacher's uh, job. And the reason for this is that uh, at certain points in one's meditation practice, um, one may have experiences you know, that certainly subjectively you know, seem like a really good and outstanding practice. However, from an objective, from a meditation teacher's point of view, it might certainly uh, reflect just the stagnation in one's certain meditation practice. And then there are other times in one's meditation when one you know, seems be having a really hard time into really you know, terrible experiences and you know, so subjectively one thinks one's practice is lousy when in ob objectively speaking you know, you know, these are all signs of uh, further you know, development so uh, it's not that easy to assess one's certain uh, practice properly and it does certain uh, from a meditator's point of view and it does take you know, a fair amount of uh, experience and it will take you know, going through you know, the different phases in you know, one's certain meditation to really you know, know what's certainly going on. And when you report, then kindly report on your best sitting meditation and your best walking session during the last 24-hour period. And what is meant here by best is simply that sitting session or walking session that you feel best represents or reflects your practice from the last 24 hours. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's only you know, wonderful experiences, but it could also uh, include uh, you know, some you know, predominant uh, difficulties. Voila. And then when you give your report, 
I'm trying to be you know, short and to the point and so, you know, do you know, leave at least you know, maybe two minutes or three minutes you know, uh, at the end you know, for you know, the teacher also to give some advice. Some meditators are so eager to report they can go on and on and on easily for 15 or 20 minutes and so, you know, the teacher is left you know, basically you know, with no time to say anything. Now, the uh, regular uh, interviews, and we will have pretty regular interviews here on this uh, retreat, so six times, uh, six times a week for all of you. Uh, so this will uh, contribute uh, to a certain intensity of uh, your uh, meditation practice and your experiences. And so... Um, the the regular interviews will have a galvanizing effect on your meditation practice. So they'll force you you to observe properly what's happening or what's going on in your meditation practice. And then when presenting your experiences, it will help you to gain clarity about what it was that you really experienced. And then on top of this, you'll have the additional benefit of receiving some advice, some suggestions, some encouragement, or if necessary, some, well, some... Um, corrective measure and certainly so on. And then having received some new instructions for your meditation practice then you can take those into your next 24 hour period and work with them and most likely your practice or your meditation will evolve further. So that's certainly usually the way it works. Now, some uh, general uh, points. Namely, when we set out with our meditation practice, then it's important to remember that our meditation is not going to be perfect. So we're not going to be the perfect meditator who will have a totally concentrated mind, totally absent from wandering mind, and so on and so forth. So the beginning tends to be quite different. And so, during the beginning phase of one's meditation practice, all sorts of difficulties tend to arise, coming in the form of wandering mind, so the mind's going off over and over again, and so this just takes a lot of patience and certain determination. And a sloth and torpor typically occurs during the first few days for most meditators. And then also pains and aches may at times prove challenging and then also sometimes meditators in the face of these difficulties may find 
than sod or me feel somewhat suddenly discouraged now when should this happen then just take this discouragement of the mind itself as an object of observation work with it and you'll be surprised or you'll be surprised to find that even this discouragement will sooner or later well dissolve and then you'll be okay again now so simply know that uh, the practice uh, is of uh, or has a gradual uh, character to it and at first uh, no, it, it may be somewhat uh, difficult and uh, then gradually as we go along uh, at times it gets easier then it might get uh, difficult uh, again so there will be ups and downs uh, in uh, the meditation and then Furthermore, please do not put any excessive and unnecessary mental pressure on yourselves. Um, as so alluded to already last night by having high expectations or setting certain deadlines or competing with other meditators. Just do you know, the practice you know, to the best of your abilities and so, you know, that is certainly good enough. And so if you feel that you're overdoing it, then maybe uh, relax a little bit, step back a little bit, and then um, in a more um, balanced manner, trying to approach the practice uh, anew. Now, also as mentioned yesterday, last night, the attitude that works best certainly for meditators is certainly that, or is one of a calm and detached observation, yet with a mind that is relaxed and alert. Now. To be on an intensive meditation retreat is not always easy and sometimes difficulties, other difficulties might arise and kindly do pay attention to always getting enough sleep. Should you have a difficulty with a lack of sleep, then please this recurse night after night and then please comment report this and we'll try to see what can be done and and then next also try to avoid certain constipation as much as certain possible especially over several days in a row so two three days and should you suffer from constipation again come and mention this and there are already some medicine or some medicine has been made available by mountain refuge to help help this and being constipated over a longer period of time usually leads to some um, well um, to certain irritation of uh, the mind 
So work on or try to ensure to have regular bowel movements. Kindly refrain from any form of fasting during this intensive retreat. And if at times you don't feel like eating, at least do eat a fair amount of food. The practice is or does require, or the practice is quite strenuous, and it does certainly require. Well, uh, a fair amount of um, bodily uh, strength. And so, and then also uh, make sure that you uh, drink enough uh, fluids. And so, uh, this is in particular important uh, up uh, here at 8,800 feet where it's relatively uh, dry. And so, uh, do refrain from any form of extreme practice. The Buddha's uh, approach to meditation was the uh, middle way and so shunning extremes such as sitting through or practicing through the entire night when one's meditation is not up to this. Trying to do the practice by force will not work. This may be even or may lead to a certain damage. And Or another form of extreme practice would be uh, again uh, by willpower uh, sitting uh, for long stretches like six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours when the body and the mind are not ready for it. There are certain points in the practice when quite naturally as a result or an outcome of our meditation things are going well and certainly easily we can sit for two or three hours and then of course it's okay but please do not force in any way. Now, this then brings us to the end of the instructions. Now, do you have some questions? Yes. Yes. Yes, you can bring your uh, notebooks into the meditation hall, but please do refrain from well opening them up during the sitting, turning pages, flipping pages, and then noisily writing. It's so quiet here uh, that even uh, those sounds are even, or that even those sounds are being heard. Uh, no. So, at the end of the sitting, feel free to uh, write down your experiences. Uh, no. Yes, Jackie. What happens if somebody is still sitting during that time? They have a long sit. Oh, well, then... Uh, then write... Uh, what's it do? <laughs> then take your notebook with you and write down your experiences outside of the hall. And the other question is, if you are having a long set, and it concludes in the middle of uh, a scheduled set, uh, what are you recommending the meditator do? Are they able to leave with mindfulness, or um, would you encourage them to stay till the completion of the set? Mm. They may have to go to the washroom. Yeah, well, in this case, 
in this case well then mindfully slowly get up uh, trying to uh, trying not to disturb the other meditators and so, you know, then uh, do whatever you need to do no, but please let us uh, do make a concerted uh, effort here as a group to, to keep the meditation hall as quiet as possible and so to avoid coming in uh, during in the midst of a sitting or leaving uh, in the midst of a sitting unnecessarily yes you were recommending when you talked about the walking that one at the beginning walk an equal time with the sitting but I think the schedule as set up the morning walks are much shorter than the morning sits is that the way uh, yeah well that's uh, the best we can do under the given circumstances and uh, then just do you know, do those shorter you know, walking sessions and uh, in the afternoon should be you know, should be better the walks are 45 minutes in the morning oh uh, our sits 45 minutes Oh, in in Asia, you know, the schedule is somewhat different from what we have it here right now. And something there, usually it's one hour sitting, one hour walking. And and at our center in uh, in Lumbini, we have uh, usually we give the meditators the freedom to sit, you know, for 45 minutes. Let's say a beginning meditator cannot sit for for the full hour. Then I would say, okay, just sit for 30 minutes or 45 minutes, and uh, then get up and uh, do your walking meditation outside. No, but this here, since the group is quite big, uh, is uh, will be difficult to do because it disturbs the others. Yes, anything else? Uh, you have another one? No, it's just a comment. The, the latch on the door, mm-hmm. is there any way we could just close the door to the, you know, where it closes, but without actually latching it? Mm-hmm. Just oh. close it anyway. If you don't latch mm-hmm. it, It'll stay closed. It's closed enough. Yeah, okay, then let's uh, then let's do that. Yeah. And uh, and for the mosquito screen to door, should do you think it's necessary that we maybe put maybe a piece of cloth there? Yeah. Right. If uh, let's let's maybe let's do it like this. If uh, you know, the door you know, makes uh, that door makes too much noise, you know, then we could consider doing that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Anything? Yes, please. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sure enough, um, you know, during walking periods, there's no no problem there. And, uh, and Jeff. Where's the interview schedule posted? Where will it be posted? It will be posted on the information board, probably in the 
late afternoon or the next day. Yes? So I, I understood that there's no bell in the morning at the end of the sit. Is that right? That's true now. We can do whatever you'd like. We can arrange for someone to ring the bell at the end of the sit, but right now we don't have that arranged. But we can. The problem with the bells in the morning was that a number of meditators will be going for uh, for interviews and then their you know, morning jobs and this and that and so, you know, that's that was. Uh, yes, it wasn't clear whether you wanted people to have an interview during one of the sitting periods. They should stay outside. Yeah, yeah right. And not come in and out. Yeah, right. So perhaps we could have bells in the hall to mark when this period. Yeah. Or maybe you know, just to whoever is here, if uh, you know one person volunteers, takes the bell and so sort of hits it at, so at the end of the sitting. No. You can just take it to your seat. Come and get it if you're sitting in the morning set. The place set just come get to your seat and keep track of it. No. Okay. Anything else? If not, uh, then uh, what does the schedule call for? Now it's, uh, yeah, then probably we'll do, do walking meditation. Say 10.15. Maybe 10, oh, lunch is at 10.30, 11.30. So, maybe for, um, if you do a half an hour of fitness sitting meditation, Oh, sorry, of walking meditation, and so, so now it's 10.21, or maybe you're 45 minutes, 45 minutes, how, how would that be? So, now, let's say until about 10.45 for the walking, and then from 10.45 until uh, 11.30, uh, a 45-minute sitting session. Yeah? Would that be all right? Okay. That's it then. And Dhamma talk tonight at uh, 6 or 30. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.